Amen. All right, guys. So uh, we are going to continue in our series that we've been going on for this is week three, I think, uh, or six weeks, where we are uh, kind of the series called What Is, and we're looking at and walking through questions of the Christian faith that we might dig deeper and understand more fully what we believe and why we believe it. And so I've said that the, these six weeks are less preachy and more teachy, if that means anything to you. So that's kind of where we're at. Uh, we've looked at uh, what is God? We've looked at what is the Bible? And can we trust it? And today we're going to look at what is salvation? What is salvation? You know, there are moments in our lives that stick out to us. In our lives that for whatever reason stick out to us uh, for some reason. For me, one of those moments happened about three years ago. I was sitting in church, and uh, I was in a really big church, and so I didn't really always know what was going on. And we sang a song, and I sat down, and there was a baptism happening. It's like, oh, cool, there's a baptism happening. And so, so I watched as this about 80-year-old man walked down into this baptistry, got into the water, and began to share his story. And I really don't remember much about his story other than this one line that he said that hit me like a ton of bricks, and that stuck with me. He said, I've been going to church for most of my life, but until today, I didn't understand I was on the sideline until finally something clicked, and I gave my life not to a church or to religion, but to Christ, and he was baptized. I was moved and filled with hope, hope for those in my life, those I know who have missed or misunderstood or had rejected the good news, people who were uh, near church, but near enough to kind of be inoculated and miss it. It gave me hope because as a pastor and as a youth pastor over the years, I have talked with so many people from this tall to this tall who have been confused or misunderstood what salvation was, what the gospel is. I've, I've talked to people who said, you know, Brent, I got saved last year, but I think I need to do it again. And I'll, or I'll ask someone, hey, you know, are you saved? Do you know Christ? And they'll say, yeah, I was baptized a couple years ago. That's not what I was asking. Or they'll say, I was baptized as a baby. Or I went through confirmation. Or I went through a new Christian's class. That's not what I was asking. Are you, and then the, the saddest, most heartbreaking one is when you ask, hey, are you saved? Do you know Christ? They say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. No, not what I was asking either. This topic may be one of the most important topics we cover in this series because it is literally understanding what it means to be saved and how we can be. I think there's a lot of confusion and misinformation and sometimes bad teaching on the subject that we, uh, as I talk to even adults over the years, cannot articulate what it means to be saved and how one can be saved. So I encourage you this morning to listen in. Whether you fully understand your own salvation now or maybe uh, you have some doubts and, and you need to grow in your confidence or you need to realize what it actually means to be saved, or you need to maybe learn some language so that you can share with others what it means. So that's what we're going to do. First, understand that we have all this kind of churchy language that we use, this insider churchy language when we talk about salvation. Often we say saved, are you saved? You know, we'll use that. 
And sometimes that doesn't make sense to people. We baptized a girl uh, uh, about a year and a half ago here. I say girl, a young lady, a young woman. Uh, and when I first started talking with her, she asked me the question. She said, Brent, y'all, y'all say, are you saved? You talk about being saved. And she said, I have no idea what that means. And so whether I say saved or salvation or redemption, I'm referring to the same idea, this idea that through Christ, we can experience forgiveness of our sin, new life, the total redemption or making new of our mind, our body, our soul, and our hearts and live forever in a kingdom with Christ in perfection. And so before we dig in, understand that salvation uh, we need to understand that we, we, we can talk about it in two ways. We're going to talk about salvation accomplished and salvation applied, or redemption accomplished and redemption applied. So when we talk about what Jesus has done 2,000 years ago, that is redemption accomplished. He did something, but it's not ours. It has to be applied to us by faith. He accomplished something 2,000 years ago. That's the redemption or salvation accomplished, but it must be applied. Jesus has accomplished salvation, but it is not ours until it is applied to us through faith in Christ. But in order for salvation to be necessary, there must be something we need saving from. If we're going to be saved, we're going to be saved from something. And while I do not have time in this sermon to go through that, it could be a whole sermon in itself, let me sum up our problem like this. Because of our sin, our rebellion against God and his ways, everything is broken. Everything is broken. Our minds and the way we think are broken. Our hearts and our emotions are broken. Our will and our ability to do rightly is broken. Even our own bodies are broken and fail us. We are under a curse. Us and the entire cosmos, the entire universe, broken under a curse. Everything God created has now been marred and broken by this curse of sin. So because of sin, because of this curse, we are separated and alienated and disconnected from God and from each other. We are, as the Bible says, spiritually dead, and we deserve the rightful justice of a good and holy God. And now only God can rescue us. So over the next few minutes, I want to dig in and understand what it means for God to rescue us. What does it mean for him to redeem us? What does it mean for him to save us? And it begins with something called conversion. Conversion, this is in your notes, let me define it for you. Conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. Sometimes when we hear the word conversion, we think of someone converting from like Catholicism or converting from another denomination. I was Presbyterian, now I'm Baptist. I was Methodist, now I'm Episcopalian. We, we think of converting like that, but that's not really what conversion is. Conversion at its simplest means to turn. It's a turning. It is a turning away from sin and a turning toward Christ. It is a 180 of someone's life. You are turning away from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world, and turning toward the kingdom of Christ. Conversion requires that we turn away from sin by repenting and turn toward Christ in faith. So let's think about that for a minute. Saving faith 
is trust in Jesus as a living person for the forgiveness of sins for eternal life with God. It is trust in Jesus. You see, to have genuine saving faith, there must be more than a simple agreement to a truth. There must be more than asserting a certain truth to be true. It is not simply believing that there is a God. It is not simply believing that Jesus is who he said he was. The Bible reminds us that the demons believe. And not only do they believe, but they shudder. They have an an awe and a fear, or almost a reverence of God. They, They know who he is. They know that Jesus is who he said he was. They believe in the resurrection from the dead. And yet... They do not have saving faith. In John chapter three, we meet a guy named Nicodemus who's this religious Jewish guy and he comes to Jesus at night and he says to Jesus, I know you have come from God. But by the end of the story, as Nicodemus asks Jesus all these questions, we figure out that Nicodemus doesn't have saving faith. Though he is religious, though he believes in Jesus on some level, he doesn't have genuine saving faith. Saving faith is more than agreeing to a doctrinal statement. It is more than checking a religious Christian Baptist on your Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever y'all have. Saving faith is placing your trust in something. It is placing your hope in something. When When you sat down in that chair this morning, you didn't hesitate, you didn't think about it, you trusted that it would hold your weight. You trusted that it wasn't going to fall. So you sat on it. In the same way, we must place our trust in Christ that him and him alone can forgive us of our sin and him and him alone can save us and make us new. But then the other side of the coin is repentance. If we must turn, if there must be a 180 in our life and we must turn away uh, from something and towards something, faith in Christ, but turning away, that's called Repentance turning toward God, but away from this broken world, away from our sin and rebellion. Repentance is this. It's a heartfelt sorrow over our sin and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Jesus. Now, repentance does not mean that we are perfect because I've seen how y'all live. Y'all ain't perfect. I'm just kidding. Repentance doesn't mean we aren't perfect because I'm the furthest thing from it. Because there are things in our life, there's things in my life that I'm always repenting of. Like, it's like, man, I gotta do that again. Repentance is this lifelong endeavor. However, repentance is sorrow over your sin and how that sin has offended the God we serve. It is not sorrow over the consequences for the sin. It's easy to feel bad when things don't, when, when you get punished, when you get consequences, when things don't go your way because you messed up, right? Like when you get caught, it's easy to feel bad then. That's not repentance. Repentance is the sorrow over how what we have done has grieved the heart of God. When, when uh, Scar- Ember, get my kids mixed up, I have too many of them. When Ember, my littlest one, was starting to walk, We'd, we, you know, you put your fingers out and you let her grab on and you pull her up and you 
like there's a couple steps and he'd let go and you know they'd walk like this and take a couple steps and fall over. When she was doing that, my reaction was, are you serious? Only two steps? Get it together. Your brother was running a 4-3-40 by now. You ain't going to make the squad if you keep this up. No, that was not our reaction. Our reaction was, good job, honey, yeah. Keep going, do it again, let's get up. And God is the same way. Repentance is not God looking down, pointing his finger, going, are you serious? Come on. Get your act together. That's not what he's doing. He said, oh, you feel that? Let me grab my hands. Let me pick you up. Let's get up together. Let's walk. That's out. You got it. Let's go. God is not looking down angry at us, but he's saying, hey, we're turning in faith. We're turning away from this world. He says, I know you want that, and I know you know it's going to hurt you, and so we're together going to walk this direction. So we repent. You see, conversion is one particular moment in history. It is the moment you chose to turn away from your sin and turn toward Christ in faith. It is the moment, as John 5, 24 says, that you crossed over from death to life. You're converted. Now, at that exact same moment that you choose to turn away from your sin and toward Christ and saving faith, something else happens, something that is super important, the thing that actually saves us and puts us in a right standing before God. At the moment of conversion, we are justified. The justification is an instantaneous legal act of God, which he considers our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, which results in us being righteous in his sight. Romans 5.1 says, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification comes from this Greek word, dikaios. Dikaios is the noun meaning righteous. But to get justification, you have to get to turn that noun into a verb. It becomes dikaiosune, which means to be made righteous. Justification literally means that God is making us righteous. He's making us perfect. He's making us whole. Meaning. That when we are justified before God, we are completely in the right. We have no errors, no wrongs, no sins, no marks against you. You are found to be completely in the right, even though we're not, actually. Even though none of us actually are good. We are justified before God. We are made as if we are completely in the right in his sight. If you are in Christ, and you are justified, which means Romans 1, 8, 1 is true. That says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are made righteous. You are declared legally to be in the right, which means there is no condemnation for you. So let's dig a little deeper into that. How does that work? How is it that God justifies it? We've been singing a song over the past couple of weeks. We're going to sing it at the end today called the Divine Exchange. Divine Exchange. And that, uh, that is exactly what has happened. There is this exchange that has happened. Justification takes two steps. The first technical term is called penal substitution, which means my sin goes to Jesus. My sin to him. When Jesus died on the cross, he took all of my and your sin, and he paid the consequences for it. The wrath of God, the anger and justice of God toward our sin was being poured out 
on to Jesus instead of us. He was our substitute. He takes our place. The first part of justification is my sin to Christ, but the second part is the part we don't always realize. The second part is the part we don't get. And it's called imputed righteousness, which means Christ's righteousness to me. And exchange means there's two things moving. My sin to him, but his righteousness to me. You see, because forgiveness is not enough to get you into heaven. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, only the righteous will inherit the kingdom of God. And so forgiveness isn't enough. Think about if you've got a credit card debt or some student loan debt or something, think of a number line. That, was, that puts you in the negative, right? In negative whatever amount. Forgiveness. So let's say the government comes and forgives all your student loans. What happens? That brings you to zero. Forgiveness brings you to zero. But we've got to be righteous. We've got to be in the positive. We've got to have some money in our account. So how can we have righteous when the Bible says that our best works are but filthy rags? How can I ever? Forgiveness is great. It gets me to zero. But if I've got to have positive righteousness, how can I get that? If my best works aren't good enough, how do we get there? You see, we often talk about how good works will never get you into heaven. But what we really mean is that your good works and my good works will never get us into heaven. But the works of Jesus. You see, when you trust Jesus, he doesn't just forgive you. But he lived this perfect life. Jesus always obeyed his mom and dad because he knew you wouldn't. Jesus never lusted in his heart because he knew you would. Jesus always obeyed, was always perfect. So that when you placed your faith in Christ, not only would your sin go to him, but his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness, his goodness would be given to you as if you did it yourself. So you go from forgiveness to zero, and then you get to be in the positive. You get active righteousness because Jesus credits to your account. See, justification is two-sided. Justification is that it is just as if I'd never sinned, but it is also just as if I have always obeyed. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see this slimy sinner who has screwed up and who's on their last, last try. Instead, he sees the perfect, righteous of his son Jesus in you. He looks and remember when Jesus was baptized and the father says, this is my son and in you I am well pleased. He says the same to you. You are my son, you are my daughter and in you I am well pleased. We are justified. There's this divine exchange, my sin to Christ, his righteousness Christ got what I deserved, I get what Christ deserved. Double exchange. We're justified, I mean, right before God. So at the moment of conversion, we're justified before God, made righteous in his sight. But in that same moment, something else happens. We're converted, we're justified, and we are simultaneously adopted into his family. Y'all, I want you to listen to this passage from Romans 8, 14 through 17. And whenever you get sad, just read this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, 
Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, God does not save us in order to make us mere citizens or servants of his kingdom, but rather he brings us into his family as sons and daughters and heirs to his throne. When we were born, we were born not just as spiritually dead, but as spiritual orphans. And when God comes running to our rescue, he comes to bring us into his home, to give us his name and all of the privileges that come with being his child. You know, there are several families in our church who have adopted children into their home. Several families in our church who have brought children into their home and said, you're going to have my last name and you'll be a part of this family. And what's mine is yours. And that is this beautiful picture of exactly what God is doing, saying, you are coming into my family. You take my name. What, my, what is mine is yours. Now, some of you have heard this story, but it's my favorite, so you get to hear it again, so get over it. The Mabrys, Nathan, who's our worship pastor, and Rachel, adopted this little kid from Haiti named Rubinho three or four years ago. Say, what's up, Rubinho? And after being here for a couple years, Rubinho came to know the Lord. He came to trust in Christ. And I was meeting one time with Rubinho and his brother Josiah, because just his brother hadn't been baptized, and, and we were going to baptize both of them. So I was meeting with them to make sure they understood the gospel and all those things. And as we were meeting, I began to explain this aspect of salvation, that salvation is a being adopted into God's family. And so as I began to talk about that, I said, really, y'all are the perfect picture. I said, Rubinho, you were adopted into this family. I said, your last name is now Mabry. And I asked him, Rubinio, are you a full Mabry or a half Mabry? And he said, oh, I half Mabry. And immediately, Josiah, his brother, looked at him and said, no, you're not. You are my full brother. My dad is your dad. My mom is your mom. You are a full Mabry and you are my full. And that is exactly what God is saying to us. You are my child. You are my family. And I will take you with every fault and every mistake, even when you disappoint me, even when you sin, even when you mess up, even when you think you don't matter, you will always be fully mine. You will take my name. We get to look at the God of the universe, not just as some big sovereign supreme ruler, but we get to call him Abba Father, his personal name, Daddy, which means we have unfettered access to him. See, the only person who dares to go wake up a king at three in the morning to ask for a glass of water is his child, and we have the sort of access and privilege to the God of the universe to disturb him at any moment. He doesn't get angry or upset or say, why are you bothering me? Just come climb on my lap, son. I'm all ears. The adoption is an act of God where he makes us members of his family, full members. Not, sorry, redheads, the redheaded stepchild. Full members. Salvation begins at conversion. 
and were simultaneously converted, justified, and adopted by God, made righteous and brought into his family. But when speaking of this, you know, what we'll use the language, we're saved, or we were saved, or we are saved. It is an event that happens at a particular moment in history. It's in the past, it's complete, it's final, we're saved. And while that is true, that we have been saved, and nothing can undo that, it is also true that not only have we been saved, but we are being saved in the present. This is called sanctification. It it is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. See, if justification is the removal of the penalty of sin, sanctification is the gradual removal of the power of sin in our lives. See, God has forgiven us, forgiven us of our sin, but yet I sin every day. Every single day, I struggle, we struggle, we sin. We've been forgiven, but yet we still struggle. And so sanctification is this process by which God is making us and forming us into that person he's declared us to be. He's declared, not like Michael Scott on The Office who declares bankruptcy. Not like that. But he has declared that we are righteous, legally, perfect in his sight but we're not. Legally, in our standing before God, we are, but we're not. And so sanctification is the process by which he makes us into what he said we are. He is making us into what he has declared us to be. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. You are being transformed into the image of Christ. See, God is on a mission in your life right now, in this moment and in every moment of your life, to make you, all of you, your mind, your heart, your will, to be more like Jesus. That's why God sends trials in our lives. Trials to refine you. He is using your marriage and your kids and your friends and that that relationship that like needs a little extra grace required to love that person. He's using those relationships and, and he's using the good days and the bad days and your frustrations and your work and your coworkers. He's using all of those things to make you bit by bit a little more like Jesus. See, the images the Bible uses to talk about how we grow are images that portray the difficulty. Ironing, sharpening iron. When iron sharpens iron, sparks fly. When you make a sword and stick it into a furnace and heat it up to where it almost melts and then begin to bang on it and bang on it until it is straight. Or the heating up of gold until it melts so that you might sift all of the impurities out of it. God refining us is not often comfortable. It's often difficult. God refining us and making us into Christ often hurts. It is like uh, Michelangelo, who carved the statue David, was once asked, how did you do it? How did you make this masterpiece, this statue of David, out of this just big old rectangle block of rock? And he said it was simple. I just removed everything that wasn't David. And that is what God is doing to us, chiseling away 
ever so slowly every part that is not the new us. That is not the us he's making us into. That is not the redeemed, perfect, new child of God that will be us forever. He is just simply chiseling away every little piece so it is all gone. Sometimes we get discouraged because we say, you know, I'm not growing as fast as I think I should. Like I look at all these other people and they're like, just super Christians, and I look at myself and go, man, what are you doing with your life? And sometimes we get discouraged because we're not growing as fast as we want. But the Bible uses another image for growth too, and that's plant growth. And if you ever try to watch a plant grow, you'll be there for a while. Like remember kids in school when they make the little plants and they put them by the window and every day they come in and they're like, maybe it's dad, teacher. Until one day they run in and it's like, boop. It's like, where did that come from? Been like three weeks. Plants grow slow, and if you watch them, you'll never see them move. We got a Venus flytrap recently. I'm like, I just want to see the one fly. Never seen it move. I think it's a myth. You see, you're, you may not see your growth when you look from last week to this week. You may not see your growth when you look from last month to this month. But when you look at over the course of your life, there will be slow, gradual growth because we know the gardener who is pulling the weeds out. We know the gardener who is tilling and providing sunshine and watering. We know the gardener who is over our lives and we trust that he is going to make us into something that will bloom and be magnificent and beautiful. Is going to make us into what he has declared us to be, called sanctification. Finally, how does, how does this end? How does our salvation end? You see, if we've been saved and if we're being saved, then it stands to reason that there is a sense in which one day we will be saved. See, there's a future reality coming where our salvation will be complete. So if justification is the removal of the penalty of sin, sanctification is the removal of the power of sin, then glorification is the removal of the presence of sin. See, when Jesus returns, he is returning not to say, all right, guys, let's get out of this crummy place and let's go up to heaven. It's better up there. It's not what he's come to do. He said and come to make all things new. Not make new things, but make all things new. Where not only will we just be declared as being righteous, we will actually be. We will no longer have the ability or capacity or even desire to sin ever again. We'll be completely made in the image of Jesus from top to bottom and inside out. We will feast at our Father's table, surrounded by our brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and live forever in the city of God. Glorification is not merely a spiritual reality. Salvation. Understand, it's not simply a spiritual thing that is unconcerned with the physical realities of the world. It is, it, it is intimately physical. It is holistic. It is all. It is everything. God is not taking us up to heaven and just saying, let's get out of here. He is restoring and fixing the very dirt beneath our feet. And with it, our bodies. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead of perfection, so will we be raised from the dead just like him. We will run and not grow tired. We will walk in our hips and our knees will not go out. 
Someone this morning, I just heard someone this morning talking about how they got to take pain meds, right, to, to fix their joints because their joints hurt. I'm getting ready to play flag football, and as soon as I'm done, I know I'm going to be hurting for, like, days. But there is a day coming when no longer will our bodies get wrinkly and old. No longer will our hips and our knees ache. No longer will our fingers get arthritis and hurt. No longer will we be bound to wheelchairs. We will be made fully in the image of God, raised to new life and perfection because God has come to redeem not just the soul, the whole person, your mind, your heart, your soul, and your body. He's come to make all things. Salvation is concerned everything. The glorification is the completion of God's redeeming work whereby he makes our minds, hearts, souls, and bodies whole and perfect. Every part of us was broken by the fall. And every part of us will be made, will be made whole in salvation. And while we're on this journey, we're, like while we're in the middle of whether, you know, some of all people in this room understand you're at different parts of that journey. Some of you haven't been converted yet. You're on this side. And you need to turn away from your sin and turn toward Christ. Many of you in this room are being sanctified during this process. None of you yet are at the glorification part. Still with me? One day we'll all get there, and so we're all in kind of different parts of this journey. And because of that, there are going to be times that you doubt. There are going to be times that you doubt that God could actually love you. There are going to be times that we doubt God could actually save us that we're such a mess, that we're so broken that God can never clean us up enough or put us back together. Sometimes you might think you are a lost cause, that you are too far gone. We might doubt that we are actually saved because we're not getting better fast enough, as fast as we think we should. We might think that there's no God would want me to be a part of his family. If you knew my past, if you knew my present, if you knew my thoughts, no, God wouldn't want me. And when those thoughts and seasons come in your mind, I want you to think of two things. One, when Jesus was on the cross. Remember the, right before that when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying and sweating blood? In that moment, he knew everything you would ever do. He knew every mistake and failure and thought and grotesque thing you would ever think or do. Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy set before him that he could endure the cross. Meaning, he knew everything that she would do, but yet it gave him joy to know that he could go through the most excruciating, painful, horrible thing, be separated from the Father, so that in the end he could get you. That brought joy to his heart. So if Jesus was willing to, know, to go through hell for you on the cross, knowing all that you would do, he's not going to give up on you now when you stumble fall short and you struggle he's not going to go last straw because he's already known everything you would ever do for your whole life and still found it good cause to endure the cross the second thing is philippians 1 6 the god who began a good work in you will bring it to completion you see god always finishes what he starts if god has moved you in such a way that you respond responded to him in faith and repentance. 
you turned your back on your sin and you made him the Lord of your life, then God will never let you run so far that he can't get you back. You may struggle, you may fight, you may run, but he will never let you the least go so far that he can't redeem you from it. You can never lose your salvation because it wasn't something you ever achieved in the first place. It is a gift, freely given, lavished upon you. Jesus says that he holds us in his hand and no man can take you away. So we, went, we gotta remember the words from Romans 8, 35 and on where he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who can separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, and in case he missed something, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know what is included in everything else in all of creation? You are. And so not even you can separate yourself from the love of God that is in Christ. You don't need to get saved again. And again, you don't need to do what I did when I was 15 years old, laying in bed every night praying the sinner's prayer. God, if I didn't mean it enough last night, if I wasn't seer enough last night, God, save me tonight, forgive me tonight. God, if I, if, if I didn't believe enough last night, I believe enough now, save me. Praying that over and over. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to live in doubt and fear and insecurity that God loves you. You can know that you know that you know because there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem to this day that is a testament and a reminder that God loves you and it will never fail. So place your faith in Christ. Turn from your sin. Make, your, make Jesus the Lord of your life and then go sleep. Knowing you are safe in the saving arms of your Father. Father, what a good and gracious and kind Father that you are. That you would come to rebellious, broken sinners like us who do not deserve anything but hell and judgment. And yet, you loved us so much that you were not willing to, to let us go into that judgment, but you sent your only son to die on a cross and be raised from the dead so that we might find new life and hope in you. So God, this morning, there are a couple different kinds of people in this room. There are those in this room who in this moment right now, if they were to die, they'd bust hell wide open. They've not been converted. They've not been justified. They've not been adopted into your family. They've not turned from their sin and toward Christ because maybe they think in their mind, oh, I've got to get my life together first. I've got to clean it up. I've got to start coming to church for a while or I've got to you know, do better. Then I can come. Well, God, would you show them this morning that that is a lie from the pit of hell because if we wait till we're clean enough, we'll never come. Now, would you show us this morning that you want to take us just as we are? Stains, faults, sin, brokenness, and all, and you want to make something beautiful out of the mess we bring to you. And so, God, for those people in here this morning that don't know you, we pray that as we sing this song, and we've got me and some other people standing up here, that they'd come and say, Brent, I don't really know all about the salvation thing, but I want it. Show me how to get it. That's free of charge. 
And for those in this room who, who are doubting, who look at their life and say, I'm not growing fast enough, who look at their life and say, I'm too messed up, I've got too much in my past, how could God ever love me? Father, would you remind them this morning that you bled and died and have looked at them and their sin and made them white as snow, that their sin as far as the east is from the west, that it's gone, and that there's nothing them or anyone else could do to ever separate them from your love. And for some of you, there is someone on your mind, someone at your work, someone in your family who doesn't know you. God, would you give them the courage to share the message of the gospel, the message of salvation with that person I know they need to. God, give us the courage to respond however we need this morning, whether we need to come up here and just have one of, one of these people pray for them, pray to work through the doubt, pray to work through the wrestling, come and, and talk about what it means to know you, what it means to be saved. Or if you just need to stand there and sing and say, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for sending your son. Let's do that. However you need to respond, however the spirit prompts you, listen to him. He's working for your good. God, give us the strength. In Christ's name we pray all people said.